The subject I'm covering this morning uh, with you is a, is a massive subject. It's a massive section in Scripture. And we're looking at the Old Testament because we're trying to, we're trying to come face-to-face with the Old Testament God, which is the God of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that so far? We're in a journey of discovery to see the beauty of the character of God from from the beginning all the way through. I'm going to have a word of prayer with you and ask God to be with us uh, this morning. Will you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you for, thank you for life. Thank you that we are breathing. Thank you that we woke up this morning. Father, as we enter into this study I know that your presence is already with us in our praise, in our testimony, in our prayers. Father, now I pray that you would would occupy our thoughts, that you would arrest our attention, that we would catch a glimpse of the beauty of Jesus here in Genesis. Lord, challenge us, open our paradigm Help us to see you through new angles. Help us to appreciate your person. Help us to appreciate not only what you do for us, but, Father, to appreciate who you are. We ask for your spirit to be with us now. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we thank you and we pray. Amen. So at a rise in the United States, several of our students have been doing ministry at uh, a university in the city where I live, it's the city of Oregon. And in this university, our students met a recent Chi- a Chinese young man who just arrived recently as an exchange student. He's studying economics. This Chinese uh, young man has never heard of the gospel, has never encountered the Bible, never read anything in the Bible, and has never been introduced to the biblical narrative. So our young people are here studying the Bible with this young Chinese man. And in studying, they're trying to figure out how they can really connect. How can they, how can they build some common ground? And I was fascinated by some of the stuff that our students were teaching me. They took this young man and they walked him through the Chinese language. See, as we're reading through the, the first chapters of Genesis, we're running into some pretty grandiose stuff, some pretty hard-to-believe stories that even in our day, in our secular world, many people doubt and question. Did the stuff from Genesis 1 through chapter 11, did this stuff actually happen? How do we know that this stuff actually happened? Was there really, really this thing in the garden? Was there really such a thing as a massive flood? Did, this, did these things really happen? Why, where is the record of these things Outside of the Bible, where are the historians that have written down the record of the flood in Noah's story? You ever wondered that? So they took this guy and they basically walked him through the Chinese language and they showed him how biblical history has been recorded, not by chroniclers or historians, but it's been embedded in the very language of one of the most ancient, continuous civilizations on earth. Yeah? So I just wanted to share a few things that I got excited about as they shared with me. The word to covet, or the word desire in Chinese, as you know, the Chinese language is written with characters, different word pictures. The word covet is is a combination of the word for trees and for the word a woman. So when you get trees and you get a woman and you put those together, you get the word covet and desire. When you look at the word garden, how do the ancient Chinese, how have the ancient Chinese been writing the word garden? Well, you take multiple different individual words. You have dust. You combine dust with breath. Then you get two people in an enclosure, and that's the word garden. Can you say amen to that? So we're talking... 2500 BC, Moses picks up his pen and starts writing at around 1500 BC. Are you guys catching the the implications of that? 
So centuries before the, the Egyptian pyramids, the Chinese are recording biblical history. Before Buddha, before Confucius, the Chinese believed in a God who was exactly like Jehovah from the Old Testament. You look at the word tempter, you get the combinations of secrecy, a garden, a human being, trees, and the devil. You look at the word to create. It's a combination of the words to speak, into dust, and that brings a walk or life, and that's the word to create, straight out of Genesis. The word forbidden, again, again trees and God. And then you look at the word boat, since I am speaking about Noah this morning. And the word boat is a combination of the word vessel, the number eight, and people. Eight people in a vessel is the way that the Chinese have been writing boat for centuries. Can you say amen to that? I think God is really smart. Because he didn't simply identify certain historians like, the, like Herodotus or Thucydides from the ancient Greeks as historians. He, he embedded the story of himself in the very language of the most ancient civilization on earth. Isn't that beautiful? So these things in Genesis do not merely exist in our Old Testament. They exist in the story of humankind. When we get to chapters 6 through 11 in Genesis, we, we face a massive transition in the Bible. Uh, I should say, this is the prep for a massive transition in the Bible. David has told me, do not talk about Genesis 12, because he wants to preach on that. So, I have to stay right there. Uh, open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. In Genesis chapter 5, we get the preamble for good old Noah and the narrative that follows. Genesis chapter 5, there's a really fascinating passage here that begins it, verses 1 through 3. Now, I'm assuming we have in the back of our minds the preacher who preached last Sabbath. The uh, pastor preached on Genesis 3.15. We've talked about the early chapters of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, the fall, and the curse last week, and the promise that came from that curse. Now, check this out. In Genesis 5, if you're there, I need your permission to read. I'm not up here just lecturing. I'm hoping this is going to be a journey we all go together. Can you say hallelujah if you're looking at Genesis 5? Should we let them slide scene? That was pretty lame, but I'm assuming you're in Genesis 5. I'm in uh, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam and the day that God created man... He made him in the likeness of, help me out, saints, God. Verse 2, he created them, male and female, and blessed them and called them mankind on the day they were created. Adam and Eve were made in the image and in the likeness of who, everyone? God. Now check out this creepy transition here. Verse 3, and Adam lives 130 years and begot a son, what does it say? In his own likeness, after his, what, image, and he named him Seth. No doubt you see the translation here. Adam and Eve are created in the image and in the likeness of God. When you have the fall in Genesis chapter 3, and all the chaos that comes with that, the very next generation of human beings that get ushered into this world are now in this world after the image and likeness of, of Adam. Now, mind you, of Adam after the fall. Okay, this is happening in Genesis chapter 5 because the author of Genesis is prepping the stage for this massive crisis that's going to take place on a global scale. And he's trying to show us what is the root of this crisis? The root is right here in Genesis chapter 5. So we have this transition. And after verse 3 comes a long genealogy. How many of you guys love reading the genealogies in the Bible? If you raise your hand, you're a liar. Because you know you don't. You know you even wonder why God wasted paper on that, right? The genealogy here in Genesis chapter 5 is pretty fascinating. We're told from Adam... 
we're given, I don't know, excuse if I miscount, like nine-ish, ten generations, and we're, we're given the names of these patriarchs, right? Now, of course, Noah comes at the end of that list. Now, the fascinating thing about this list is that, like in my Bible, I just circled all of these guys. You have Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kinnan, Mahalalel, Jared, you have Enoch, you have Methuselah, you have Lamech, and you have good old Noah. Now, what's fascinating here is that the writer of Genesis, in the back of his mind, he's thinking about Genesis chapter 3. The whole, the whole thing, he's thinking of Genesis chapter 3. He's thinking about the perfect creation that God created and the fall of man, and now we are in a curse. And as he's thinking of that, he's He's narrating the gospel in this genealogy. I think it's fascinating that when you line up these guys and their Hebrew names, that their Hebrew names translate into the English into a sort of narrative. Now, some of the names are easier to pinpoint than others, but for, for ease here, it basically goes something like this. Man has been appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, shall descend, to teach that his death shall bring to the despairing rest and comfort. Isn't that beautiful? The name Noah means rest. The name Noah means comfort. Now, now if you're in Genesis chapter 5, look at what it says here in verse 29. Because when Noah is named, an, an explanation is given. Genesis 5, 29. And he will call his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and, and the toil of our hands, because the ground which the Lord has, what everybody? Cursed. Noah is a child that is born for the purpose of reversing the curse. Do you see that? Noah is a glimpse, he's a shadow of this seed that was to come through the woman that was going to create conflict with the seed that was to come through the serpent, Noah exists to mess up the devil's plans. Can you say amen? Noah's purpose is to reverse the curse. Of course, though, Noah is just a glimpse of this. Noah is just a prefigure because Jesus will come later in the narrative, which I'm not allowed to talk about Jesus. <laughs> Supposed to stay right here. But Jesus is all over here. Jesus will come later in the narrative as the real Noah. But Jesus will not fulfill the promise by escaping death like good old Noah did. Jesus will escape the promise by conquering death, not by hiding in an ark, but by becoming an ark himself and plunging himself into the darkness, right? And the invitation is for those to hide in Christ in the ark as it, as it journeys through the darkness and through the shadows. So, Already in Genesis chapter 5, Moses is not ready for Noah yet, and he's already spitting out gospel truth. He's already painting a picture for what is to come. Now, the list that we just read is of some really old dudes, right? The antediluvians, right? Deluge, ante, before the deluge, before the flood. The folks living before the flood were some really old dudes. They lived almost a thousand years, okay? Now, Moses thinks it's important for us to know how long these people lived. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we care about their birthdays? Really, who cares? See, what's coming in Genesis 6 is something that's going to be so nasty and so messy that we need some prep to really sink our teeth into it. Now, when you look at the flood, immediately when the flood comes, the generation right after, the longevity of humankind just shoots way down, right? Now, this is, this is an interesting thing. The fact that the antediluvian world lived so long is a hint as to how much potential that generation had. Here's a simple illustration. I stole this from C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. He looks at, for example, a cow. How much potential for good is in a cow? How much of a blessing could a cow be to this world? Wow. I guess I shouldn't ask that in a room with a bunch of vegetarians, right? They're like, cows are eat. No. 
How good is a cow? Hey, look, a cow can give us some milk. A cow could feed some folk for a few meals. Yeah? A cow, a cow is capable of some good. Now check this out, according to Lewis. Proportionate to how much good a cow is capable of, proportionate to that, he's also capable of an equal amount of evil. You guys catching what I'm throwing? So what if we pump it up a notch? Well, before we do that, how much evil is a cow capable of? <laughs> Diabetes, heart attack. <laughs> look, look, if you ran into a cow in an alley, I don't know if you have alleys here in the street. You're walking with your lady and you, you cut into an alley and there was a cow. Do so you go, ah, and you run. Nah, you wouldn't run. A cow's not capable of much evil, is it? Okay, let's pump it up a notch. What about a dog? How much good is a dog capable of? Man's best friend. Yeah, you, I, you go on YouTube and see these dogs saving people and stuff. Right? A dog is capable of good. More good than a cow, I dare say. And because of that, a, a dog is capable of how much more evil than a cow? Okay, rewind. You're walking down the street with your lady. You cut a corner. Yeah, <laughs> you know where this is going. And you're face to face with a vicious Rottweiler. You say, sweetie, I love you, but I got to run, right? <laughs> In other words, it's capable of more evil proportionate to its good. What about an ordinary man? Just a, a simple old, like a normal Joe. Simple dude. Simple dude. He's capable of more good than a dog, and because of that, he's capable of more what? Evil. Okay, now let's pump it up a notch. What about an absolute genius? How much good is a genius capable of? Yeah, he can figure out cures for diseases. Yeah? He can figure out how to change the world through like Apple computers and iPads and stuff. Right? Technology, medicine, architecture, whatever. A genius is capable of a lot of good. And because of that, how much evil is he capable of? Okay, why am I going through this? Because when I read Genesis 5, this is what popped into my head. I'm currently studying history, guys, and history is a long record of humans doing some really nasty stuff. And human beings in the course of 60 years are capable of extreme evil. But what if these very same human beings could live 900 years? I would ask you, how much good can a genius working in this world for, nine, for a thousand years do? And you say, a bunch! And I would say, uh-huh. What about 1,000 years for a genius gone bad? How much evil can that, can that genius perpetrate? You guys follow what I'm saying? We read these stories and they look cute. We're looking at a serious crisis that's about to go down here. Now, you'll have to indulge me here because I read some stuff that just blew my mind in a, in a book called Patriarchs and Prophets. I'm going to read this to you. Can you bear with me for a second? Okay, hang in there. Notwithstanding the wickedness of the antediluvian world, that age was not, as has been often supposed, an era of ignorance and barbarism. The people were granted the opportunity of reaching a high standard of moral and intellectual attainment. They possessed great physical and mental strength, and their advantages for acquiring both religious and scientific knowledge were unrivaled. It is a mistake to suppose that because they lived to a great age, their minds matured late. Their mental powers were early developed. Could illustrious scholars of our time be placed in contrast with men of the same age who lived before the flood? Einstein, all the best of them. They would appear as greatly inferior in mental as in physical strength. As the years of men have decreased and his physical strength has diminished, so his mental capacities have lessened. There are men who now apply themselves to study during a period of from 20 to 50 years, and the world is filled with admiration of their attainments. But how limited are those acquirements in comparison with those of men whose mental and physical powers were developing for hundreds of years? It is true that the people of modern times have the benefit of attainments of their predecessors, the men of masterly minds who planned and studied and wrote, have left their work for those who follow. But even in this respect, and so far as merely human knowledge is concerned, how much greater the advantages of the men of that olden time? Check this out. 
they had among them for hundreds of years him who was formed in God's image, whom the Creator himself pronounced good, the man whom God had instructed in all the wisdom pertaining to the material world. Adam had learned from the Creator the history of creation. He himself witnessed the events of nine centuries, and he imparted his knowledge to his descendants. The antediluvians were without books. You guys following this? There were no need for books. Why? There were no need for written records because their great physical and mental vigor, they had strong memories, they were able to grasp and to retain that which was communicated to them, and in turn, to transmit it unimpaired to their posterity. There's no books in school because their brains were so potent that they heard something once and it was photographic memory. And for hundreds of years, there were seven generations living up upon the earth contemporaneously, having the opportunity of consulting together and profiting by each, by the knowledge and experience of all. Look, I can go on and on and on and on. The point here is, guys, would you agree that the antediluvian world was basically on steroids? I mean, can you even begin to, to fathom what that society would have been like now? I haven't looked into this too deeply, but there are books out that purport to report on discoveries made from the antediluvian world. Batteries, hints of electricity, sophisticated transportation that we would never imagine. Could you just imagine what it would have been like? Better minds for a thousand years. So when you get to Genesis chapter 6, would you turn to Genesis chapter 6 now? And when we get into Genesis chapter 6, we begin to see now the situation that God is faced with. If you're there, can you say hallelujah? Now it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born to men that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall, strive, shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh. But his days will be 120 years. Verse 4. There were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, verse 5 and 6 is really where I want to park. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man that was great in the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was, what everybody? Sorry that he had made man on the earth. And, and this is so, this is so profound. And he was grieved in his heart. The Bible tells us that God's original dreams for humanity was that God created man in his image and in his likeness and told them to be fruitful and multiply. The reason God did that is because his dreams for humanity was to create a race of, of beings who would be mirrors of his, per, of his beauty, of his perfect selflessness, and that as they scattered through the world, God's beauty and selflessness would in turn be scattered through the world. Things went south, clearly. And what, what's taking place in Genesis chapter 6 is that the plans that God originally, ha originally had get perverted. Here's a summary of the condition of the world as told, as identified here by, by uh, Genesis. We're told that there is wickedness in the land. We are told that there is evil that is indescribable, that there is just relentless, continuous evil. The thoughts and intentions of human beings is nothing but evil, the Bible says. We're told in verses 11 and 12, and I'll just read those for you, that the earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth. Indeed, it was corrupt because all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So Moses paints a picture here that God is confronted with this creation that he made with a beautiful purpose, with a beautiful vision, with a beautiful dream. And the very things that God put in this world to be good themselves come pregnant with the potential to go south. 
So the, the picture painted here is not a mild picture. It's not a cute picture. If you could imagine for a second the greatest evil that you've ever witnessed in this world and just completely put that thing on steroid a million times, we are simply too dumb to be very good at evil. You with me? We're too inexperienced. We're not, we're not ingenious enough to really mess this thing up. There was a generation who was. But, you know, it's silly things. For example, 48 hours ago, I got a call from, I got an email from home, and my mom was, you know, at the bank, and she witnessed a bank robbery. The, ro the bank was robbed while my mom was there, right? Now, we see that in the news all the time, and we're like, oh, that's crazy. But when it happens to your mom, you're like, whoa. So I read that email, and I thought to myself, that seems strange and out of the norm to me. How many of you would think that's strange and out of the norm? Your mom is in the middle of a bank robbery. But what if that was just business as usual? What if that was just something normal that took place in society on a consistent basis? This is more or less just getting barely close to the condition that we have. So Moses confronts us here with the heart of God. What is about to come in the flood is something that is boiling in the very heart of God. I love that passage here. The one we read there in verse 6, and I wish I had the, uh, the ability to really impress this verse on our, on our consciousness. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. We don't confront an angry tyrant here in Genesis 6. It's not a God who's outraged and who out of anger is going to obliterate all of existence. The picture that Moses is painting is a very different picture. It's not an angry tyrant, but it's a troubled parent. It's not a God who, who is ready to just execute all of his wrath. It's a loving God who's faced with the predicament that things are going completely out of control and that the affairs that are happening down here have a direct implication on the heart of God up there. So Genesis presents the God of the Old Testament as an extremely intimate God. You see that? What happens in your hearts has a direct impact of what's happening in God's heart. The God of the Old Testament is extremely intimate, very close and personal, very vulnerable to the affairs of humanity. That's the God presented here in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 in the New Testament. Can you turn really quickly to Ephesians chapter 4? Hold your finger there in Genesis 6. I need to jump here really quick just to show how the pictures we're getting here are pictures that stay throughout the entire biblical narrative all the way to the New Testament. I'm going to read here quickly Ephesians chapter 4. And I'm, I'm, I have in my pocket this, this idea of God being grieved in his heart in Genesis 6. In Ephesians 4, it says this. I'm beginning in verse 30. This is Paul writing to the Christians. And this is what he says. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It's the same, the same concept. Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, how, how do we grieve God? How can we bring pain in the heart of God? Well, he goes on in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. In other words, God is deeply affected by the way human beings interact with, not with him directly, but with other human beings. You see that? So in Genesis 6, we, we saw a picture, wickedness, evil, and then we saw violence. When God steps into this picture, guys, God is not distant up on his throne declaring thunderous judgments and floods. God is here. Check this out. This is powerful. When the curse was given to humankind back in Genesis 3, in verse 16, ladies, you'll remember 
what was Eve's lot because of the curse of sin. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception and in pain. I want to emphasize that. And in pain, you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he will rule over you. Okay, the curse of sin on humanity was, was to bring pain to the human experience. Is that clear? You flip the pages a few to chapter 6 of Genesis, what we just read. And when God is witnessing what's happening in the antediluvian world, when the Bible says that his heart was grieved, it's the same root Hebrew word from the, from the word pain that was in Genesis chapter 3, as a result of the curse. In other words, God himself is tasting and he's embracing the curse that was to be experienced by humankind. So when the floodwaters come, it's not coming from a distant God. It's coming from a God who's up close and personal. It's coming from a God who is feeling every single inch of what's happening down here. One author said that it's like the emotional up evil in his guts i love hosea chapter 11 verse 8 i'm just trying to illustrate what you find in genesis you find through the narrative hebrews hosea 11 verse 8 how can i give you up O ephraim this is god speaking to his rebellious people how can i hand you over O israel my heart what Don't you love that my heart recoils within this is god speaking my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of Genesis. A God whose heart recoils as he witnesses the pain that human beings themselves go through because of the curse. God himself comes close and personal with this. So what's the result? The result is verse 13 of Genesis chapter 6. The Bible says, And God said to Noah, The end of all things has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Okay, follow what I'm saying here. The end of all things has come before me. What does that mean? God is looking at the very extinction of the human race. The end of all things has come before me. The very extinction of humanity is what I am confronted with right now. And what happens next is a merciful act of intervention in order for God to save the human race. I got to be honest with you. When I, read this, when I read the flood story, it's very easy to walk away thinking, man, God is a mean God. Isn't it? It's very easy to walk away with one overwhelming impression. God exercises his anger and his wrath to punish. And look, there's no question God is a God of justice. I'm the last guy to sugarcoat that. But this is powerful. The flood is God's gracious endeavor to preserve the human race that is on the brink of extinction. There's a lot of awesome stuff that goes with that, guys. But what happens next, I wasn't serious about going through all of those chapters. We're jumping through here. The flood, the flood is communicated to Noah. God makes a promise to Noah. We know the story. I won't spend your time with the details. Noah is given the calling to communicate mercy to the world for, for over 100 years. And as Noah is building the ark, that is God's mercy to the world. The, 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 the completion of the ark takes place. The Bible says that Noah and the rest enter into the ark. And then it says God himself closes the door. Can you imagine what it would have been like with all those people that are mocking this crazy, wacky old man that's talking about a flood? Because up until that time, were there thunderstorms in the antediluvian world? Up until that time, hear what I'm saying now, Noah's message would have conflicted with popular science. Is that true? Noah's proclamation would have been completely against what the scientific community would have said was even possible. Yes or no? They would have said, Noah, you're crazy. 
This has never happened. Could you imagine what it would have been like when those people were outside of the ark making fun and mocking and, and, and at some point somebody felt a raindrop on their head? Could you imagine what that moment would have been like? Could you imagine what, how the silence would have just rocked people as the water was beginning to rise? And by the time it got knee high, could you imagine? And by the way, I won't go there, but in Patriarchs and Prophets 99, we're told that Satan himself feared his own existence. You tell me that that was quite a sight. The flood takes place. The water stops pouring. The water begins to recede. There's Noah. He's been in there for a long time. And then there's this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful passage that comes next. I skipped through two chapters right there. And the beautiful passage that comes, we're in Genesis 8, verse 1. And the Bible says, and God, what does your Bible say? And God remembered Noah. And God remembered Noah. How many of you are thankful that in Scripture, when God exercises judgment, there is always a covenant promise that goes along with it. When God exercises judgment, there is always a promise that is attached with his message of judgment. God makes a covenant with Noah, and the Bible says, and God remembers Noah in verse 1 of, of Genesis chapter 8. And this is beautiful, guys, because uh, Moses is presenting that the Old Testament God is the God who remembers He's a God that doesn't forget his people. And through scripture, not with only big events like the flood, but with little events, with mothers and families. We remember this in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me. Don't forget your maidservant. And the Lord remembered her. The same Lord that remembers global cataclysmic events remembers the insignificant individual somewhere in the house, somewhere in a neighborhood that's crying out to him. And judges Samson Oh, Lord, remember me, I pray. The psalmist, what in the world do you see in humanity? They are constantly on your mind. Jeremiah, oh, Lord, you know, remember me and visit me over and over and over again. You find this concept of God remembering. And then, guys, we get to my favorite part, the stubbornness of God. How many of you guys think God is stubborn? I figured you wouldn't raise your hand. I figured you wouldn't raise your hand. I'm convinced now that we serve a stubborn God. I know, I know that sounds strange. But guys, I'm grateful that God is stubborn. And I'll tell you why. Check this out. Original creation, Genesis 1. Beautiful new creation. And God says, you're in my image. You're in my likeness. Be fruitful and multiply. Now watch this. After the flood waters come down, look at what God says. It's crazy. Quickly, guys. Genesis chapter 9. Quickly, because we're jumping to the Tower of Babel for three minutes afterwards. Genesis chapter 9. Listen to what this says. In verses 9 and 2. Remember, the destruction of the flood has already come. And listen to what God says. This is in the aftermath. So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, what? You're going to have to help me out if you want this to go. So I'll park it right here. What does it say? What are, what are the instructions? Be fruitful and multiply. Guys, that's exactly what he said in Genesis 1.28. That's exactly what he said. Now look at verse 6 of chapter 9. Of Je- I'm telling you, I'm talking to you about the stubbornness of God. Listen to this, Genesis 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And and look at what God says about how precious human life is. For in the image of God, what? God made man. That's exactly what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, before the flood. Before the flood, God has these dreams. Human beings completely mess up God's dreams. And we invite a curse upon this world. So much so that God has to make an emergency intervention. And then God comes at the end of that. And what does he say? He repeats the same dream that he had in the beginning. Now what does that tell me? What that tells me, guys, is that God is intent on fulfilling his lofty, beautiful dreams that he has for humanity. And that there is nothing, there is 
no failure that is too great for God to relent from his beautiful dreams for our race. Can you say amen to that? God does not relent. God is determined. God's grace, beauty, and and his covenantal promises are stubborn. Why are they stubborn? Because they won't go away no matter what we do. Because they won't scare him away no matter how nasty and how messy things get. Look, it's very clear that what God should have really done is wiped out the entire race and come up with some other idea. Because clearly this race is thoroughly messed up. But God can't do that. That's, that's not what's in here. God can't do that. God is determined to come along for the ride in the messiness of the human experience. God knows it's going to be messy. God knows it's going to be nasty because, because human beings are messy. And yet God still is committed to seeing his will flourish in the lives of human beings. He recommissions those same crazy human beings with the same vision he had even before sin. The people who entered the ark, were they perfect people? Absolutely not. You, you flip a few pages after Genesis 9, and you realize very quickly that into the ark entered some thoroughly human people, right? Right after, the, right after Noah's flood, you have some craziness happening because the people who entered the, entered the, the, the ark entered with their own brokenness inside. Now, you would have been in the ark, and you would have been upset that you were in the presence of these messy people. But, but brothers and sisters, where would you have gone? Was there an option to say, I'm sick of this. I want out. <laughs> what happens when you, when you go out of the ark? You know, it's interesting. There's a parallel there because church, the church could be this ark in, in this world. And, and are the people in church perfect people? Yes or no? Are there broken people in church? Absolutely. Now, what sense would it make to, to say, I want out. I want nothing to do with this church because, because of so-and-so. Right? Just like in the days of Noah, so too in our day. Uh, the, the ark is a floating hospital for sick people. Can you say amen to that? It's a floating hospital for sick people. The church is a hospital for sick people. This becomes abundantly clear to God in the immediate aftermaths of this story. And indeed, things get messy very quickly because just a few generations later, we're in Genesis chapter 11. And we're just going to pop two, two or three simple things here and be done with it. In Genesis chapter 11, the flood is over. The descendants of that episode are back on the scene of action. And they've got plans. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they dwelt there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. Verse 4, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Whose top is where? Now, do you think there's any coincidence that the flood is very fresh in the collective consciousness of these people? And what they want to do now is to build a huge tower that goes really high. Is, there, is that a coincidence? Why are they building this tower that goes up so that they can poke their head up in heaven? What's the intention here? What is the implied connection here? These people are building a tower really high in case God tries to pull one on them again. In other words, this is an act of rebellion against God. What does it say right after that? It says, let us make a name, verse 4. Let us make a, make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole world. And God looks at this situation. Again, the stubborn God. Look, God looks at this situation. And he's back, he's back at it again. And God says in verse 6, And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Guys, listen, you have the first episode of empire building in the entire Bible right here. This is the first example of empire building. What do you got? You got a combination 
of advanced technology, technological advancement, with ideological propaganda. And when these two things come together, what happens? Potentially bad stuff happens. And in this scenario, they build this, this, this big tower. And you know that we found traces of what they call ziggurats. Have you guys heard of a ziggurat? It's like these, these towers in, the, in ancient Mesopotamia, in this region. And what they used to do is they used to build these towers. They're basically staircases that go higher and higher and higher. And up at the top, there's a little resting place and food. They would climb up and put food there. It was a stepping stone for their gods to step down in a sort of hotel and enjoy some of the provisions. And the reason they did that was in the hopes that God, the deity, would return a favor to them. In other words, it was their way of manipulating their deity to do whatever they wanted him to do. Here's what you have here in Genesis chapter 11. Okay. The word Babylon, if I ask you what does it mean, most of you say it means confusion. Now here's the interesting thing. In essence, it really means the gate of God. But Moses says, uh-uh, it's going to mean confusion. In other words, the people building the Tower of Babel were trying to build a gate. They wanted access. They wanted they wanted the prerogatives of God. And God says, this is confusion. Messy, nasty, what will God do with his dreams for humanity? Will he abandon it? Will God turn a new page? Will God wipe everybody out and say, I'm going to do creation all over again? What does God do? And here's... Here's the punchline here, guys. Here's where we, here's where we land because I'm, I'm, I'm skipping this genealogy right here and we're right at the end of Genesis 11 where I've been commanded to stop. Now, this genealogy is a map of the world after the Tower of Babel. Check this out. This is, this is good. Then it gets to Terah's descendants beginning in verse 27. Genesis 1 through 11 includes hundreds of years of history. By the time you get to Genesis 12, where next week, it goes, Arr! and then there's chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter covering a very short period of time centered in one family, the family of Abraham. But check this out. You need to catch this because this is my punchline. When you get down to the end of Genesis chapter 11, Moses is saying all of the problems of the curse, all of the problems of God's creation that has gone completely out of whack, the fact that God's image is getting blurred, and the fact that the people of God are not multiplying and bearing fruit so that they could spread and reflect the beauty of God to the whole world. Don't worry, don't worry. We, there's an answer. Don't worry, God has a solution. There's a special family that God has selected. And this special family is going to to be fruitful and multiply. And this special family is going to bear image to the, to the beauty of God and it's going to reflect it. Don't worry, there's a special family. His name is Abram and her name is Sarai. Look at verse 30. Genesis 11 verse 30. Can we say this together? But Sarah was barren and she could not bear children. Sorry to let you down, guys. Can you believe that? There's this, all this buildup. Building up to Israel, to Israel. This is going to be amazing. This is going to be amazing. It's actually going to happen. God's dreams are actually going to come true. And here's my family. She can't even have children. So here it is. God is going to use a people who are incapable in and of themselves of bearing fruit. Just like in the original Genesis, the voice spoke over the void without form and void. Now with this new movement, it's like an orchestra, and this new movement, God will speak over a world that has gone barren. And the message here, guys, is that God is a stubborn God. He refuses to relent. Israel will be a messy affair. 
Israel will be a messy affair. It will be nasty. It will be a roller coaster. But God's relentlessness says that he is a specialist in working with brokenness in humanity. Can you say amen to that? God is a specialist in working with the brokenness of humanity. God is a specialist of working with barren people who can't bear fruit. And it is with these people that the whole history of the Old Testament will, will center with a church who is broken, messy, and nasty because that's the kind of people that God uses. Is that good news to you today? That the Father has a rich history of a reputation of using the brokenness of his creation to restore his dreams for humanity. And brothers and sisters, that means you and that means me. How many of you feel like you are broken instruments, broken mirrors that are trying to reflect God's image, but you're a broken mirror? The God of the Old Testament, that's the kind of mirror he uses. As we listen to this song, uh, I'm going to invite the deacons to come up and they're going to pass out this card. This is a response card. As we think about the invitations that the God of the Old Testament has extended in this passage, this is a response card. The first one says, I acknowledge my own brokenness, and I'm thankful for God's relentless covenant fidelity. Number two says, I recognize that my life impacts the heart of God and I desire to live in harmony with his will. As you listen to this song, please enter into a spirit of prayer. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we pray you for, we praise you. We praise you for your beautiful love to us. Father, we praise you for the history of your long suffering and your determination to pursue us and to not give up on us in spite of our brokenness in spite of the messiness of our lives, Father, we praise you for your covenant fidelity. Help us to hold on to that in our hearts and in our minds. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You can turn these in on your way out to the